This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Right On, showcasing the work and lives of Otago and Southland writers. Tune in for news and interviews with your local writers on the second Wednesday of every month from noon to one and repeated the following Sunday at 11am. The university bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the university bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to Write On with Vanda Simon, the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and sponsored by that fantastic team at the University Bookshop. Join us for the next hour as we get to delve into that wonderful world of books. Liam McIlvany is the award-winning author of many great crime fiction novels and I've had the pleasure of interviewing him a number of times on the Write On radio show. In his Twitter handle, he describes himself as an academic, slow-motion crime writer, dad, Kilmarnock supporter, and adoptive New Zealander. And he's here today to talk about his latest novel, The Heretic. Liam, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Fanda. Thanks for having me on. Last time I talked with you on the show, it was for the release way back in 2018 of The Quaker. The Heretic is a follow-up to that novel. So... Why this novel? Did you always intend to write more about D.I. Duncan McCormick? No, I, in fact, quite the, quite the opposite. I conceived the Quaker very much as a standalone, Vanda. Um, it, it was based around a particular real-life case, the Bible John murders that took place in Glasgow in the late 60s. And that was the sort of hook for the novel. And it was very much conceived as a one-off and it was only when my editor at Harper Collins, a woman called Julia Wisdom, suggested that uh, it might be an idea to bring this character back, that this might be a character that we could we could bear, we could stand hearing and reading more about Duncan McCormick. So I thought, oh, well, that's that, that might be an idea. So I duly brought him back for for this book. So of course, if I if I had uh, you know, planned this out in advance. I, I may have sort of th- set things up slightly differently and made my job slightly easier than it was to write a, a sequel. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, Indeed. isn't it? <laughs> and I do love the name of your your editor, Julia Wisdom. Well, it's I mean, it's one of these nominative determinism things, isn't it? I mean, she really is extremely wise as she pulls apart my manuscript and tells me what's wrong with it. So, yeah, it's very appropriate to get these emails from Julia Wisdom telling you what you need to do to make your book publishable. <laughs> and that actually quite nicely brings up one of the um, things I was wanting to ask you, well, I was going to ask later on, but now in that... Um, the heretic is a follow-up to the Quaker is you know the actual reading order of books because for someone reading the heretic it tells you pretty much what happens in the Quaker did you have that in mind at all while you were writing the heretic suppose you're conscious that not everyone who reads the heretic will have read the Quaker so you know without um being too laborious and annoying the people who have read the Quaker I suppose the aim is to try and 
you know, introduce the the character and give the relevant backstory so that they can make sense of of what's happening in in this novel. But you can you can certainly read the Heretic uh, and hopefully make sense of it without having read the Quaker. <laughs> so you mentioned that you know you hadn't initially thought you were going to write more about D.I. Duncan McCormack, but you know once you had decided you were going to do this and set aside any other novel ideas that you may have had lurking in the background, um. What did you come to enjoy about writing about this character? I think I enjoyed sort of going back to using Duncan McCormick to sort of look at the Glasgow in the west of Scotland. Not not quite of my my youth. I mean, this book's set in 1975. Uh, so I was born in 69. So it, it's, it's almost my sort of early memories are, are sort of, Shading in, but it's still mainly, I suppose, uh, you know, a, a period that I've researched rather than sort of drawing on direct memories. But I did enjoy sort of going back to that period in Glasgow through Duncan McCormick. Um, I think I also, you know, one of the the useful things about McCormick from my perspective, Vanda, is that um, you know he shares some characteristics with me as a kind of lugubrious West of Scotland male, uh, but he also has qualities and, and features that I don't share, uh, most noticeably, I suppose, his sexuality, that the fact that he's he's gay. And I think it's also it's always useful to have those points of difference that require you to kind of think your way into a character. You know, I think the danger often is if you're writing a character that maps directly onto your own experience and background, it can be a little flat that there's not enough distance between yourself and, and the character. And it's interesting you, you, you talk about that because, you know, um, Dion McCormick, as a gay police officer at that time in the 1970s, you know, he had to keep that as a secret because there would be severe repercussions um, if that became known. So in writing the book, you know, why did you specifically add this element to his life and how did that reflect um, you know, that setting again, that Glasgow setting in that time? Yeah, I suppose, I mean, these things are not, not always as maybe as sort of conscious and, and deliberate um, as, as people might imagine. I mean, sometimes a character just sort of comes to you with certain characteristics and it just seemed to me that, you know, Duncan McCormick might well be gay. Um, I mean, I suppose it is, as you say, it's, it creates a quite an interesting narrative tension when you put a gay police officer into the context of 1970s Glasgow, because of course he's, uh, you know, he's breaking the law by virtue of his sexuality. So it gives you that sort of tension between the, the guy who's upholding the law, but who also is breaking the law by virtue of, of his sexuality. And it also gives you a character who's got that outsider dimension and who sets it something of a remove to the sort of main culture of the police force at, at that time. I think that's always quite useful to have a character who doesn't quite fit into the milieu with which you're dealing. So I think for all those reasons, it's quite uh, it's quite useful to have um, McCormick with, with this element to his characterisation. You said that the heretic was set in 1975, and I'm like you, a 1969 gal. So, um, Excellent. And it, it, it 
it's hilarious to me to think that this is now classed as historic. historical fiction. It does require a bit of research, though, doesn't it? If you're, yes. you know, if you're going back, I mean, I think Walter Scott, who basically, you know, if not invents the historical novel, sort of sets the template. I mean, Waverley is is set sixty years after the events it, it narrates, so that that becomes, if you like, the kind of gold standard that it's a historical novel if it's sixty years ago. So this doesn't quite meet that standard, but it still does, I think, require you to. Um, you know, delve into the, do a bit of research in, in old newspapers and so on to try and get a sense of of the time. So I think it, it, it is still, still is to some extent a kind of historical novel. Well, from a, you know, a technological standpoint, of course, it seems like the Dark Ages, you know, pre-internet, um, pre-mobile phones and GPSs and everyone knowing everybody's business and, of course, social media. So, um, no, I was curious, and when you were doing your research, one of the um, little things that really quite struck me was um, when they, talking about the newspapers again and researching newspapers, that, you know, did the newspapers actually have the morgues that you describe in the book, you know, times where they, they had files of people and all the clippings from articles about them? Did they actually exist? Absolutely. I mean, the, the Chicago Daily Times still has one, a, a physical... Uh, morgue where you, you keep all those uh, old <laughs> files and, and clippings. I always loved that idea with papers that, you know, you could go into this room and and sort of find a, a reference to whoever you were you were looking for, the actual the actual clippings. Uh, so, yeah, but that was all, all quite good fun to um, utilise that sense of a period when newspapers were at the heart of public life in a way that they're, they're really no longer... Are um, so that uh, and, and as you say, going back before the advent of mobile phones and you know people actually having to talk to one another and interact and you know make arrangements to meet later instead of just using their phones all the time. So all that's a godsend for it's a bit of a relief really as a as a novelist to retreat if you like from this connected wired present to um, an age where, where people are sort of interacting perhaps a bit more directly. <laughs> and of course the political landscape of that time is you know, very turbulent. Now, how, was it, how important was that for you to capture that sense of um, discomfort and unease in that political landscape within the novel? Again, that gives you quite an interesting backdrop, Vanda, I think, that you've got, you know, 1970s in, in the UK and in Scotland. Um, it is, as you say, a very turbulent time. Um, it's dominated by, you know, industrial unrest and, you know, the uh, terrorist bombing campaigns and, of course, the troubles kicking off across the water in, in Northern Ireland. Uh, so all that gives you quite an interesting backdrop, I think, for uh, a novel about, you know, crime and lives being disrupted and so on. It feeds in quite nicely to the, the sort of ambience of, of the 1970s. Um, and it, I think it, it's just a, a period that, that really lends itself, I think, to writing about kind of fractured lives and, you know, extremes of experience. The Heretic is set in Glasgow, um, and you, you mentioned that you know, it was a city that you knew in your, in your youth. 
But, you know, why specifically Glasgow, not Edinburgh or, you know, any other, you know, other major Scottish cities? You know, what was that connection for you that made it have to be Glasgow? I think it's just the fact that it's a city I know best, Fanda. Um, I mean, it's there's a certain, I always think there's a certain element of difficulty in writing crime fiction about Glasgow because it's it, crime in a way is so obvious and, and in some sense defines the image of the city to outsiders. I mean, Glasgow had the highest homicide rate in Western Europe for about 10 years from 1995 onwards. Um, it's always been regarded as a city with a gang problem, a problem with knife culture and violence. And so by contrast to, I think of a city like Edinburgh, which at least before the advent of the Rebus novels and Irvin Welsh's train spotting, was seen very much as a sort of genteel city dominated by, I suppose, the, you know, Muriel Sparks' crime of Miss Jean Brodie was probably the dominant international image of Edinburgh. Uh, so you did have that sense that you could write crime novels about Edinburgh exposing the sort of violent under, the surprisingly violent underbelly behind this facade. And I suppose the difficulty with Glasgow was that um, you know, the violence in Glasgow is, is quite upfront, so you don't have that sense of kind of peeling back the the layers. And I suppose that's partly why a lot of crime writers working in Glasgow and writing about Glasgow tend to push back into the past and to look at the city before the transformation that took place in the late 1980s and 1990s when the city was sort of cleaned up physically. You know, the, the buildings, the sandstone buildings were all sandblasted and, and cleaned up and the soot was all dissipated and it was like that. It was the sort of technical, the advent of Technicolor almost. You had these lovely blonde and pink sandstone buildings where before everything seemed to be in, in black and white. And there was a real concerted effort to change the city's image and to emphasise the importance of, of culture and move away from those old stereotypes. And so to some extent, I think what crime fiction in the case of Glasgow does is, is sort of push back into the past, beyond that transformation to an older, sort of grittier city. Um, so that was, I think, you, know, you see that in, in, for example, in Alan Parks's Harry McCoy novels, or you see it in Denise Miner's fantastic novel, The Long Drop. Um, so I think, you know, the, the Quaker and the Heretic are part of that sort of attempt to, to sort of look again at that older, grittier Glasgow. And the physical descriptions of Glasgow within this novel, they are just so evocative. Now, how did you approach that for like the, you know, were the details correct of actual buildings from that time? Did you have to go back and find that or did you just make stuff up and take some, some well, license? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a bit, I mean, I'm a great believer in that, you know, the, the, the gay guys making stuff up, you know, we are, we are writing fiction. But I did also do quite a bit of research when I was home in 20, I was home for six months in 2018 and I did do quite a lot of research for this novel and, and sort of went round to locations that I knew I was going to write about and, you know, take some photographs and footage on, on the phone and uh, just try to get a sense of the, the actual locations that I would be dealing with in the book. Um, and I'm also able to draw upon um, the services of, of various 
friends and relatives back home who will get, you know, emails asking them to confirm odd pieces of data about about Glasgow. Uh, so that, that's always quite useful if you've got a mixture, I think, of your own memories and your own research, but things that can also be confirmed by people on the ground. That seems to work quite well. And I think also the sense of writing at a distance is is quite useful too, that uh, in some ways it's, I think, maybe I'm just sort of convincing myself, but I do think in some ways it's, it's easier to write about a place from a distance that sort of clarifies your perspective on it in some sense. And to a non-Glaswegian and um, only distantly related Scott, the, the use of talk and language felt very, very authentic. You know, how did you tackle that element of the book? Yeah, that, that does seem to be something that uh, I suppose readers outside of, of Scotland comment on. And it's probably something that I wasn't really conscious of uh, of doing and, until, you know, non-Scottish readers began to, to point it out. So I suppose there are um, quite a number of vernacular terms in the book, which is something that I think just comes naturally when you're writing dialogue set in that part of the world that uh, it, it would just seem artificial for people suddenly to be speaking a very sort of proper clipped style of, of English as if they were in a, a kind of uh, you know, boarding school novel from the, the 1920s or something. So I think, I think that authenticity, um, it, it's not a deliberate attempt to sort of introduce authentic terms. It's just, you know, that's where I grew up. That's kind of the language I habitually still use when I go home uh, or in my in my own house. You know, my, my sons have this experience of realizing that certain words that we use uh, you can only use in our house. You know, that if you <laughs> if you use them in the wider world in New Zealand, people won't understand what you're what you're talking about. Uh, so yeah, I suppose there's a bit of that for me too, that it's only when the book goes out into the wider world that you realise uh, you know, wait, wait a minute, there are, are some particular elements of vocabulary here. Or sometimes your translator, you know, if uh, you know, your, your French translator will write with a list of queries about particular expressions and you realise, yeah, you know, these are, these are expressions that don't necessarily translate. The, um, the heretic, the novel is told from the perspectives of a, of a number of different people, but one of the things that quite stood out in this book um, are letters um, from one of the, the victims dispersed throughout the book. Why was it important for you to include these letters from Isabel? Well, it's kind of, I suppose it's a little device that I used in the Quaker, in the first book in, in the series, where I was just with, you know, with the material I was dealing with, the Bible John murders, I was dealing with that slightly queasy situation where the victims are all women and, and all the agency rests with the male characters who are the detectives. And so to try to counteract that, I had three chapters in the Quaker that were narrated from beyond the grave, if you like, by the three victims of the Quaker, just to give a sense, I suppose, of the the sort of rich interior life of, of these people and, and to present them as human beings rather than simply as, as plot points. So I suppose the the letters and the heretic are an attempt to 
to sort of replicate that device. So I suppose that that will be a kind of feature, I think, of of the books in this series that I, I will always try to find some device to to sort of write from the perspective of the victims in a way that doesn't really necessarily move the plot forward or, you know, that I quite enjoy writing these sections because there's something almost gratuitous about them in terms of the plot. You know, everything else you're writing is quite rigidly focused on tying up the threads and moving the plot forward. And there's, there's a bit of relief to write these little sections that just kind of meander on and give you insights into to these characters without any concern really for plot. The Quaker won the McIlvanny Prize for crime fiction, and you've been a winner of the Niall Marsh Award for crime fiction. How much pressure do you feel as a writer from the legacy of having set this high standard for yourself and, and winning prizes when you're approaching your new books? None at all, to be honest, Fanda. I mean, I think you know it's fantastic to get the, the recognition of of these prizes, but you're always conscious that there's an element of of the lottery in you know who finally gets the nod with with particular prizes. And I think also the experience of having been shortlisted for a number of prizes and not winning is actually quite salutary because you do realise, okay, the normal thing is if you're shortlisted, you don't win a prize. And it kind of takes the pressure off a bit. You just think, well, it's it's really nice if that happens, if you do get the nod. Uh, but, it, you know, it, it, it's not something that you really think about when you're you're writing the, the next book. So um, I don't I don't really feel any particular pressure on the on the back of that. It was fantastic to win those prizes, but uh, I may never win another prize in my <laughs> in the rest of my career, you know. In which case, that that will be fine. I'll just try and keep plugging away. And, and speaking of next books, and thinking back to the wisdom to use mm. <laughs> the word of your lovely editor, will we be seeing more of D.I. Duncan McCormick in future writing, or? Yes, I, I, absolutely. Skin? Yeah, I mean, I've got various of, of uh, having been, you know, as I say in my Twitter bio, a bit of a slow motion crime writer. I seem to have hit a bit of a, a bit of a vein of productivity over the past wee while. So I've got uh, I've got a couple of things underway, and I'm about fifty five thousand words into a standalone novel that I hope to finish within the next three or four months. And I've also started the next Duncan McCormick book, which I can hopefully finish uh, in in a relatively timely fashion. Um, So I suppose I'm thinking at this stage that um, there will probably be four Duncan McCormick books. I mean, you may have noticed that all my epigraphs, or most of my epigraphs in the sections for the, the Quaker and the Heretic are taken from T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, which maybe gives you a bit of a clue <laughs> as to how I'm conceiving this project. So I think once I've done the four McCormick books, I'll, I'll move on to something else. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Liam, for coming on the show today and talking about The Heretic, but also a wee bit about the prior novel, The Quaker. And delighted to hear that we're going to have some more of um, Duncan McCormick coming our way and all the very best with your your little spurt of productivity excellent well thanks very much for having me on the show vanda always a pleasure it's great thank you we're going to take a short music break now back soon 
University Bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Ooh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the University Bookshop is evil. 
you have been warned. Welcome back. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Vanda Simon, the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and sponsored by the great team at the University Bookshop. Alan Roddick is a Dunedin poet and editor who has recently published his third collection of poetry, Next, Poems 2016 to 2021. Alan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Now, this is your third collection of poetry, having published The I Corrects, Poems 1955 to 1965, then Getting It Right, Poems 1968 to 2015. So doing the maths, that's almost 70 years of writing poems. So going way back to, to the beginnings, you know, as a young man, what compelled you into writing poems as a form of expression? It seemed to be the thing that one did as a, a teenage boy falling in love with a teenage girl, um, listening, to, listening to romantic Chopin uh, piano music. Um, yes, uh, romance was in the air once upon a time. <laughs> Not that it doesn't occur nowadays, but um, back then... Writing poems which um, echoed the feelings that I was having was the sort of thing that seemed right to do. And it turned out that I was able to do it. And I had a very good English teacher at Auckland Grammar who noticed that I was writing well and encouraged me to end poems off to landfall. And it's embarrassing now to have to recall that I didn't really know what landfall was at the time. It was about 1950 four or 55 but um, I think I must have thought okay I'll do what I'm told because I was reasonably good at doing that at the time and uh, sent some poems off to landfall and was astonished to have I think they sent I sent three and I got all three accepted with a note from Brash saying I'd very much like to print these but I'd like to see something more of what you've been writing could you send me some more poems which was a bit of a head-scratcher because I didn't have anything that was really ready to send at the time. So I had to confess that. But at least I suddenly became a landfall poet, which back then was quite a, um, quite a feather in one's cap. And very remarkable as a, as a teenager at high school. Yes, yes, yes. It was, um, I remember going to visit my boyfriend's my girlfriend's father um who was uh, bob lowry the printer and um, as i arrived in the garden to come into the house he said hello i hear you write the poetry for landfall now <laughs> and quite remarkable quite that. that you had a um a teacher astute enough you know back in that <laughs> era to to recognize the skill of a of a young male student uh, in writing so prior to that you know, at school, did they teach poetry as part of the, the curriculum then? You know, how exposed to you were um, with poetry as a reader? I had been writing before we came to New Zealand. I came from Northern Ireland uh, with my family in 1952, and I had written some verse back then. Um, my, I had read quite a bit of... Um, Robert Louis Stevenson when I was very young and I remember my father 
got me to stand up on a stage at a meeting and recite a Stevenson poem from the Child's Garden of Verses when I must have been about six years old. It wasn't a dazzling performance, I'm sure, but in the last few years I got a poem out of that which is in the new collection. So I had been exposed to poems um, and it was, yes, it, it wasn't difficult to keep writing verses and I thought of myself as possibly capable of doing that. But since I had no idea what sort of career I might take, um, I couldn't really formulate that into a, let's, let's have a BA and let's have an MA and then I'll do what, whatever happens next in the teaching line of English literature. But at Auckland Grammar, my teacher there, Owen Lewis, taught us, um, I've described it in one of the poems, he taught us how to read and learn to write. And I think that that describes quite accurately his method, which if, we, if you read and understand and work out how what you're reading is working on you, you have a much better chance of being able to do the same sort of thing yourself. Now, reading through your collection, the poem Firewood really amused me. And in it, you describe the great pull and distraction of writing poetry. So, how, you know, looking across your life, how important a part of your life has been writing poetry? Writing poetry um, has been, has existed only from time to time because there was that nearly 50 years gap between the first book and the second. And during that time, I was doing all kinds of other things from domestic duties, um, marriage guidance, counselling, industry, um, but also a number of literary uh, literary hack work type things. I ran a, the poetry um, programme for radio, the concert programme, for four years, and I was on the literary fund uh, committee for probably three years. I don't remember what the term was at the time. So I, I got a few jobs to do that were to do with writing, but there were no poems getting written at the time. So having written poems was a sort of passport doing a few literary type things uh, over those years. It didn't really feel like a completely barren 50 odd years, but it was a great relief when in 2007 I discovered that I could write again and um, poems started appearing and more poems followed them, which is a tremendous buzz. <laughs> and sounds like it would have been a relief too, like you say. Mm, I think so. And you're talking about you know some of the, those other elements that you've built up sort of like a, a sideline within that literary um, community and area. And one of those is that you um, are the Charles Brash literary um, executor. executor. Yeah. How yeah. did that come about? <laughs> he asked me one day. I, I visited him occasionally, and I remember um, sitting down to breakfast one morning, and um, he broached the subject. And I had no idea what might be involved, and I was fairly confident that it wasn't going to happen for a good number of years yet because um, he wasn't that old. 
uh, and I had no knowledge of what his state of health was. But as, as we know now from his journals, his health was getting to be a bit fragile over a number of years before he eventually uh, came down with the illness that killed him. So it seemed polite to say yes. So I said yes. And he said, well, that'll be good. And I heard nothing more until somebody, I learned from wherever that Brash had died. And I got talking to various of his friends like James, um, oh, I've forgotten his name. Names fallen out of my head completely. A number of his friends anyway, who said, yeah, we know that you're tagged to be the literary executor and here are some things you might like to look at and some things you might like to do. Uh, James Bertram, of course. Um, so I eased myself into the job uh, fairly rapidly with uh, a couple of folders full of poems that he had put aside uh, with the intention of making his next book out of them and some notebooks in which he had been scribbling little poems while he had been in hospital. Uh, and I selected a number of those and um, I consulted with people like Ruth Dallas, Ruth Mumford, um, quite intensively because Ruth knew his work and knew his preferences. And it was important to try and make decisions that Charles could have been happy with. I think he probably wouldn't have been happy with everything I picked because he was really strict about knowing when a poem was ready to be published, to go out into the world. But um, I decided that this was going to have to be a special case because he wasn't around to uh, make those decisions and, and there was no way of finding out except on my own best instincts with a bit of help from my friends. So you compiled and edited three volumes of Charles Brash's This. So how has been, like, having been so involved with his life and works, and you know, the life and works of another prominent writer, reflected or influenced your own work? That's a really difficult question to try and answer. Um, he produced two or three poems, which I've got in this, this book we're talking about, um, and I was grateful for those. Um, it certainly has made, as I've got older, and I'm now a good, now a good deal older than Ash was when he died, it has made me more uh, sharply aware of diminishing time and the, the pressure to something down on paper or on the on the computer screen as happens more often these days it certainly didn't happen in Brash's time something down and catch it before it appears so I pay more attention now to possible ideas that come up than I might have done uh, with his example uh, in mind do you find having you know, Ledrum, his example, like you say, he was really quite, um, for want of a better word, critical about you know when a poem was finished and ready. Do you find yourself being quite critical of your own work? How how do you decide when something that you've been working on on is done, 
And is it ever done? Mm. Somebody said once that poems are never finished, they're just abandoned, and there's a certain degree of truth uh, to that. But I, I find myself going back to poems which are, I think are finished, uh, put them aside, come have another look at them, and they are of, they're amenable to change for a time, but there comes a point at which the poem seems to decide for itself, blow it, you've tinkered enough with me, you don't need to do any more, you're only going to make it worse. And I can argue with that since I'm supposed to be in charge, and sometimes I can make it better, so uh, what shows you how much the poem knows about things, but sometimes, probably more often than not, I am making it worse, and it would be a good idea to have stuck with the earlier version and um, and gone with that. You get more practiced at listening to what the poem is telling you, I think, with experience. It disappoints me quite often nowadays to read a lot of poems by young young people who seem to have the feeling that having got the first fine, careless rapture of words down on the page is all that's needed, and that makes a poem. Um, I find quite a lot of recent work disappointing in that way because I can see ways in which it could be improved. It, 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 it sharpened up a little bit, tightened up a bit, doesn't have to be rhymed, doesn't have to scan particularly, but there needs to be a degree of self-discipline in a poem that uh, it convinces the reader and convinces me to stick with it uh, and make sure that I really try to understand it, whatever the person's trying to say to me. Partly this is, this is an old geezer talking, um, and I've, I've become more conservative in that aspect uh, the older I get. I've become much more liberal politically than I ever was when I was young, I suspect, but I'm more conservative in what makes a good poem. And I've tried several times to try and explain that to uh, an audience, for instance, for U3A in the last few years. And it's really difficult to put into plain language. And possibly the best way to do it is to read a poem and keep reading the poem and if somebody says, well, what does that mean? Read it again um, until they get the point. It's hard work. <laughs> <laughs> so when you look back upon the, the poems that you, you know, those original ones published in Landfall that you wrote as a young man in love, um, and then you know, look across the, the span of the years, can you see your development as a poet, have you, you know, do you cast the lens that you have now and look back on your earlier works and think, I could have some, done something different there? Oh, certainly I could have done something different. You can only do what you were at the time. And if I look back at those first poems published in Landfall, heavily influenced by Dylan Thomas. And that was fine because Dylan Thomas was big news at the time and, and he was a tremendously seductive model uh, for somebody to read. It was, it was 
hard not to get swept up by that glorious voice and that roll and, and richness of, of expression. I wouldn't try and do the same thing again. Um, I try not to follow other people's styles. Somewhere along the line, I think with somewhere in that uh, second book, um, Getting It Right, I started to recognize what sounded like my own voice and the, my own way of, of, of running a line or joining words together across a line division. And I like the sound of that. And I think it's, it probably sounds a bit um, what precious to say so now, but the poems that I think have worked best now are ones in which I've tried to follow that clue of, does this sound like me? Is, does this sound like erotic poem? Does that explain it? Yeah, I think that's the best explanation I can give. And that's um, really also, I think, you know, encouraging for writers out there, you know, that it, it did take you quite some time to, to find your voice. And and I'm your voice enormous. And I'm tremendously grateful um, to be still, a, still, uh, still around and still thinking clearly enough to be able to make something have made something um, out of what I've learned over the years. Yep. So how does it then feel um, you know, to, to actually have a publication in hand then? You know, it is, you know, as, a, as an object, it is a beautiful book with you know, a lovely cover and things like that. Do you, do you get quite a buzz thinking, actually, you know, this is my work. This is here for perpetuity. <laughs> Why ever, yes. <laughs> yes, it's beautifully produced and and i'm i've i've said to um i've said to my publishers sue wooten that's a lovely book and and the printing is good and all of those things and she sort of nudged me and said that there's got good poems in it and i have to agree with her <laughs> <laughs> i can i can now see one or two that i might change a little bit if i went back but hardly any and in the book there are poems at least that I wrote 40 or something years ago which didn't quite work um, and I've dated them 1975, 19, oh, 2021 um, which doesn't mean I was working on them for that length of time for example but it means that they had been tried and, and I, I had failed back then but I had the great pleasure of discovering a way to fix them that they came out right because they had good lines in them anyway and I was really disappointed that I couldn't finish them and um, and make them proper poems. I noted those you know when when working through and I thought um, how wonderful to be able to with um, new life experience and you know writing experience to be able to revisit poems and so and to think that you know, that is a valid thing yes of course you can do that. Yes, yes. Now, one of the, the interesting things about this book is, you know, what's in a title? The title is next. So, you know, what is next for you? Well, I'll be 85 in July if I get that far. 
are reasonably confident of doing so, but these days one never knows. <laughs> um, what happens next when one is 85? I've no idea. I haven't been there before. And certainly with COVID, I think all of us have discovered that there's a much, much more plod about life than there used to be. Um, I don't think we go skipping as much as we once did. Um, each day, um, each day is in a sense a new challenge because the challenge is to make the current day work well without tripping over somebody with COVID who's going to infect us uh, or uh, failing to do something that one would really like to have done. That makes it sound like a very, very heavy weather. But um, in one of the poems, I finished it up with something like what comes next day, and then day, and then day, which is a conscious echo, of course, of the line from Macbeth, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Um, but it's still, I think, quite vividly accurate for the way we're, we, so many of us are getting around at the moment, simply because of that pesky virus. And in your plodding, are, are you still writing poetry? Um, are you getting pleasure out of doing that? I think I might have sorted out what was wrong with a new one just an hour or two ago this morning. <laughs> so I'm going to come back this afternoon and ask it how it's doing, and we'll see what it tells me. <laughs> <laughs> As it takes charge. Well, thank you so much, um, Alan, for coming and talking about your new collection of poetry next poems 2016 to 2021 and wish you all the best okay thank you vanda well that is our show for this month thank you for listening in and joining me and my guests today liam McIlvany, who is talking about his new novel the heretic and alan roddick talking about his new poetry collection next we look forward to bringing another show to you next month. Until then, enjoy lots of good reading. The University Bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe-atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand New Releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner. The University Bookshop is evil. You have been warned. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.